morning, everyone. Hey, great weather we're having, huh? I think I'm hearing that it's going to be raining soon, though. So let's enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, great to be with you this morning. My name is Young, pastor here at New Life, and it is definitely great to be with you. Uh, we're continuing on in the One in Body section of our series through 1 Corinthians, United as One. Uh, we are looking at unity in order to glorify God with our bodies. Um, last week, we looked at sin that was wrapped up in criminal law. And in our passage today, Paul is dealing with Corinthian Christians taking one another to court in matters of civil litigation. So uh, why don't we get straight into it? I'll pray for us, and then we'll get into the word. Uh, Father, we are always in need of your wisdom. We are always in need of the Holy Spirit's wisdom in our lives, Lord, as we make choices about what to do day by day and what to do with our lives. Surely, Lord, even as we uh, plan our way, you are the one who makes our uh, footsteps firm, and you're the one who guides us through your word. And we pray, Lord, that your word would be a light upon our path and a lamp upon our feet. And we pray, Lord, uh, for this today. Pray that you would illuminate this word to our hearts, that you would help us to understand what it is that you desire at our church, new life, in all of our lives, Lord, as you continue to transform us through your word and through your spirit. Would you do that work in our hearts, God? Because we can't do it on our own. We are still a spiteful, selfish people. Uh, just as we sang, uh, we know, Lord, that we are not worthy to stand before you. And yet, even as your enemies, you have invited us as your sons and daughters to your table, that we can fellowship with you, that we can feast with you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that transformative work in our hearts. May we be a people that also invites our enemies and calls them as brothers and sisters. May we be a a people that reconcile, a people that really seek to love others and forgive others the way that you do the same for us. So would you be with us through this word? Would you be with us to help us to understand what it is that you have for us? We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I once heard about an elder at a church that was quite wealthy. Um, he loved to display his wealth uh, to the whole church. He loved to do this. He and his wife wore very expensive clothing, and they made sure that you could recognize the brands. If you weren't sure, they would definitely tell you about what the brands were. They wore lots of jewelry. You know, it would just be just shining in your face all the time. Um, and they also gave large amounts of money to the church, always making sure that everyone knew who was giving the most in the church as well. You know, they wouldn't just write their names on the envelopes. They would make sure, hey, did you get that amount that I gave to the church? Now, one day, they drove into the car park in their newest purchase. It was a brand new car they'd been saving for a very sunny day uh, before driving it to church to make sure that as many people as possible could see this car driving in. And maybe because the car was so brand new and clean that the sun was reflecting directly into people's eyes, maybe because the car was stopped in the middle of the road so lots of people could gawk at this new car, another church member got into a small car accident with this car, hitting the elder, and this church member was not wealthy. He was driving a car that was worth probably less than 10% of what this car was worth. And so he got out and he begged the elder for mercy. He knew that he had no means to pay for the damages. But the elder was furious. It's his new car, he's pointing out 
on his pride and joy, this dent, he scratches in the paint. And no one else in the church is speaking up. They're all hushed. They're all watching, going, I don't want to be the one responsible for losing this elder's contributions to the church. I don't want to be the one responsible for the finances going out of our church. And so the elder threatened to take this member of the church to court unless he paid for the damages to the car. Now, as far as I'm aware, we don't have this kind of uh, instance in our church here at New Life. We don't have the instances of members of New Life taking one another to court over civil matters. Hopefully, it stays that way. Hopefully, no matter how much wealth you guys accumulate, it doesn't end up that way. But is there a principle that this passage today is telling us, is teaching us, that's relevant to New Life now, besides giving us a warning for possible future cases? Our passage today, it helps us to understand not just how Christians should think about legal proceedings with one another, but it gives some general guidelines as well for how to handle disputes with one another. And I think this is something that is very relevant to us. We might have some disputes with one another in the congregation. We Christians should be able to figure out disputes in-house, is what this passage is telling us. The idea that Christians, brothers and sisters in God's family, can even entertain the idea of suing one another in secular court is crazy talk. Read with me verse one. If any of you has a dispute against one another, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now in Greek, uh, the word dare is actually the very first word in the sentence. And Paul is very, very angry. He can't believe it. He's incredulous about this. He highlights just how disturbed he is about this instance by just shouting out, how dare you, through this letter. You don't often open up a sentence with how dare you when writing to loved ones. I hope not. Court is just not the right place to settle disputes between Christians. You know, you can see there, the highlighted word there, unrighteous. The judges in the Corinthian courts are called unrighteous by the Apostle Paul, as in they're not Christians. They're not saved by the blood of Jesus. But not only this, but the word unrighteous that Paul is using here serves a double purpose. He points out that not only are these judges unbelievers, they also act in very unjust ways. The courts in Corinth, maybe they were a little bit different from the courts of now. You know, maybe some of our guys practicing law can talk about this. They couldn't really be trusted to be fair at this time. The culture of this day believed that honor came from power, from lifestyle, from wealth. And so the entire court system revolved around this as well. Even going to court was too expensive for most people. And so you can imagine what someone of means would have a bit of an advantage. Because the upper class controlled the legal system, every advantage was given to those that were rich. Witnesses could be bribed, and it was just kind of expected. Personal connections mattered a little bit more than truth in the court system, and reputations were always at stake. Basically, the lawyers of this time, called advocates, they were trained in oratory skills. So they were trained in the skill of speaking rather than in the skill of law. And so they wouldn't hold back on blasting the other side. Whoever hired them, they hired them to speak really well of them and really poorly of the other guys. They would drag even their friends and family through the mud, 
pointing out anything wrong with them, making things up, assassinating their character in order to win the case. Sounds a bit political, right? They would go to court. Going to court then would lead to a fundamental change in the relationship between two people. You can imagine if you go in as friends and as members of the same church, at the end of it, if someone has hired someone to assassinate your character, to talk about how crazy and stupid your family is, how bad your friends are, and you would come out as lifelong enemies since all you're looking for is to win and not to reconcile. This would create possibly a permanent division in the church. Even the judges that presided over cases could be bribed. At the end of the day, everything about the Corinthian court system favored the rich. And because this, these unrighteous judges are sinners who are in rebellion against God's true wisdom, Paul is saying, these guys are much less qualified to handle matters of civil dispute between two Christians than anyone who had been made righteous by the Spirit of God. In Paul's estimation, any member of the church will be better suited to adjudicate over these matters than an unrighteous judge. Here's God's given instructions on how to adjudicate over matters within the community. Okay? Deuteronomy 16 reads this. Appoint judges and officials for your tribes in all your towns the Lord your God is giving you. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. Do not accept a bribe, for it blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Pursue justice and justice alone so that you will live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now take note, this isn't like a, you know, one of those sovereign citizen things that you see in the news sometimes. It's, not, it's talking purely about civil disputes between Christians, okay? Please don't over-apply this into thinking that, okay, the court system can't touch me, okay? You can't do that, okay? Uh, we're still under the government and secular courts. Romans 13 makes this very clear that we should be in submission to governing bodies over us. Remember also our passage from 1 Corinthians 6, the one that we're looking at today, it's talking about civil cases between Christians, okay, between brothers and sisters. It's not criminal law, so this passage is not a justification for covering up criminal charges within churches. Churches should never do this. Christians should never do this. It's also not talking about cases between Christians and non-Christians. Because so if a non-Christian neighbor takes you to court, you know, best of luck, we'll pray for you. Between Christians, those tasked with judging matters should be applying God's wisdom and justice as revealed by God himself through the Bible. This is something that isn't even possible for unbelievers to do, if you really think about it. Because of this, it doesn't make sense for the Corinthian Christians to be in dispute in court in front of unbelievers instead of resolving things before the saints. What makes the saints more qualified to handle these disputes? Because one day we find out at the end of all things, believers will judge the world and believers will even judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3 reads this, or don't you know that the saints will judge the world and if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now this is us too, not just the Corinthians. 
You may not feel qualified to do this at this point. If I'm telling you that hey, you're going to judge angels one day, like I, I struggle to figure out what I'm going to have for lunch most days, okay? So when I think about judging angels, it sounds a little bit above my pay grade. But this is a question of identity, not ability. The Corinthians, and we as well, New Life, we are an eschatological people. We will live in the New Jerusalem one day, part of the eternal kingdom of God, where we will be, that has ramifications for who we are today. Where we're gonna end up has ramifications for who we are today. And this is pure theology. If you understand this, it should change your perspective on your life now. Eschatology, or the things that have to do with the end of this age, the judgment time, the day that the Lord Jesus returns, the point of all of that isn't for us to try to figure out like a puzzle, like when's this gonna be? When exactly should I be preparing so I can repent the day before, okay? It's not about how exactly it's gonna play out. Eschatology is about who this makes you today. And so today matters. God has invited us to take part in judgments unspeakably grand. This is incredibly just universal. This is huge. Matters relating to this world and to heavenly beings. And yet, Paul points out, we still struggle to come to wise conclusions and find reconciliation in our small civil matters. It will be like the High Court of Australia contacting someone to be judged over the biggest cases in the country and then finding out that this person still struggles to settle small disputes over parking fines. You wouldn't really want to appoint someone like that. What are you in dispute over with someone else? What are you in dispute over with one another in the church? What are the matters of this life that you struggle with one another about? Are these things as weighty as the things that God has in mind for you in the final days of judgment? Ask yourself that question. If this is what God has for you, heavenly judgment of the world and of angels, then surely he believes that you are able to figure out the matters of this life, which are of far less consequence. Being unable to settle, settle these matters would mean that you aren't worthy to participate in the judgment of the world and of the angels. And yet, here's the paradox. We know that our worthiness isn't determined by our own ability. It's determined by Jesus and the identity that we now have in him. And if that's the case, since God already intends for you to participate with them in this divine counsel in the final judgment to come, then it makes sense for you to get used to at least figuring out and coming to agreement on the matters of this life with our brothers and sisters here in the body of Christ. This is the, like, at least we should be able to do this. And if you can't do this, if the two involved in the dispute in the Corinthian church can't do this, surely there's at least one person wise enough in the church to help them figure this thing out and come to a settlement. Read with me verses four to six. So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you 
who was able to arbitrate between fellow believers. Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now remember, if you've been with us for a little while, these are the Corinthians who believed themselves to be so wise that they thought Paul has to get out of the picture. We need a better Christian leader. Their wisdom has led them, led them to believe that they have first choice in these matters. We saw this in the one in mind section of our series. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you? Paul is asking. The greater shame is from here to turn to the court of unbelievers for help in this matter. For much the same reasons as last week that we saw in the criminal cases, it puts a blemish on the church's reputation before outsiders. How can it be that the people of God who say that they have the truth, who talk about a way of life that has to do with love and forgiveness and grace, they can't even solve minor disagreements between their own members. You can't even let it go. You can't even let it slide when all of your sins are forgiven. This type of behavior brings shame upon the family, brings shame on the name of God and gives the unbeliever no reason to want to hear anything of the message of the church. No wonder the name of God is blasphemed among the unrighteous, Paul says later. We have made a mockery of God by our action and by our inaction as well. We are family. Like the people around you are family. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same blood running through our veins, the blood of Jesus. Why live in strife with one another? Why withhold forgiveness? Why bring shame upon God's name, upon the family of God, through our inability to handle our disputes about the matters of this life with one another in a civil way? We might not take one another to court over these things here at New Life, but we allow it to divide us to the point of affecting our church lives. Verses 7 to 8, as it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. In the case of the Corinthians, even the mere fact that there's a lawsuit taking place in a secular court is already a defeat. It doesn't even matter who wins. Brothers and sisters of God's family are taking one another to court. Like, pack it in. It's finished. Everyone loses. In this instance, Paul is talking specifically about court cases, okay? It's not talking about the presence of disputes within the church. It's important for us to note that since we've been talking about the principle of resolving disputes. The problem that Paul is talking about is not the fact that there is a dispute, but the fact that Christians are taking this dispute to secular courts before unbelievers. It's normal for us to have disputes in the church. We're a bunch of sinners saved by grace. Of course we're going to have disputes. But just like it's normal to have disputes, it's normal to have brothers and sisters who help resolve disputes in the church. Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel, uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 17 reads this. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. 
But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. This is the famous passage that comes before, you know, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be with you as well. When conflict arises in the family of God, God is guaranteeing he's going to be there to help adjudicate matters as well. He says to deal with it first by talking to one another. Try to come to a reconciliation on your own between the two of you. Don't avoid it. It's from here that if no agreement can be reached, intervention from other brothers and sisters is necessary. Intervention from the church is necessary. Where is this process in the Corinthian church? How has it gotten to the point that no one has offered wise counsel to try and help them to reach some sort of amicable conclusion? Here's the thing about taking someone to court. The implication behind taking someone to court is that you're after some sort of personal victory. You're trying to win something, whether it's motivated by greed or financial compensation or pride for being proven right. One of these things is at play. You're after personal victory. But Paul is saying that no matter what the result of this lawsuit, everyone will lose, especially the church. I'll go so far as to say that in any dispute, if the goal is to gain some sort of personal victory, there truly won't be anything but loss for those involved. Take note, married couples. Take note, me, okay? Verses seven to eight, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Isn't it better for the Christian to be wronged? Doesn't it make more sense for Christians to be cheated? Our faith is built upon this as a foundation. Think about it. On our behalf, Jesus Christ went to the cross, being punished for sins that he did not commit. He chose to be wronged and hurt in our place. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good, Romans 12, 21 tells us. Giving up our rights and willingly suffering injustice and abuse for the sake of Christ, surely this is the way of grace. This is the faith that we say that we believe in. We can keep unity in the body and maintain a consistent witness to the unbeliever by doing these things. Now, how you choose to respond in these disputes, that's going to bear fruit in your life, one way or the other. You're, you're going to be sowing seeds into your character by the way that you act. I pray that new life is going to be the place where we sow seeds of patience and endurance in order to build up the church rather than to tear down its witness. Lest we forget that any sort of inaction is bad, the Corinthians chose to remain silent, allowing the dispute to get to a place where it reached the courts, and they passively were actually quite active in handing over their brothers and sisters to judgment from an unrighteous judge. Ironically, it's quite similar to last week's message, where we're called to hand over this person to judgment over from Satan. And we have the same thing happening here. Final three verses. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? 
Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Throughout the Bible, those that suffer look to the future hope of the kingdom to come so that they can have their inheritance. This is what gives them hope. And so they remain obedient. They endure patiently throughout difficult circumstances. We see this in the Old Testament in books like Exodus, Deuteronomy, Daniel. And they know that one day, what gives them hope? They're going to stand before the only righteous judge and they'll have their cases heard. For believers to let go of this and to act just as unrighteously as those who won't inherit the kingdom of God, this is a frightening thing indeed. In these final verses from today's passage, Paul lists 10 vices that are common among the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now keep in mind, Paul isn't saying that anyone who has ever committed these sins is finished. He's not saying that. He absolutely believes in grace, and we know this. He's talking about a lifestyle of rebellion against God, not just a momentary fall into sin that we struggle against. Please take encouragement in this. I know that we have brothers and sisters here at New Life who struggle with these things. And Paul is talking about those who pursue these things persistently as a lifestyle, rather than those with the lifestyle of pursuing Jesus that fall now and again. Persevere is what he's saying. We see throughout the New Testament the perseverance comes through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as he continues to sanctify us, as he continues to make us new. So even as you struggle, keep going. Paul states in the final verse here that some of you used to be like this. That for some in the Corinthian church, they were rescued from this type of lifestyle. And this changed them completely from the inside out as they've been transformed. If we Christians are future-oriented people, we're an eschatological people that look to the day of Jesus' return, then we know that the future has come to live with us in the present, to change who we are now. And this also means that we have to leave things in the past. We should be able to figure out our disputes in a different way from the way that we did in the past. If your way of the past was to argue until your face was blue, to make sure that you prove your point, to get your point across to people, to make sure that you win, leave those things in the past. The list here doesn't have to do with just what's been talked about in this letter so far either, but it also points forward to the passages still to come. The Corinthian Christians, they've been guilty of going to prostitutes, of idolatry, of everything that Paul mentions here. And so certainly, as this letter continues to unfold, this list is going to be fresh in their minds. It's going to be stinging. And for us, new life as well. Maybe this is the case too. As we read 1 Corinthians again, I urge you this week, reflect, meditate on this passage, on this list of 10 vices in particular. Let this list of vices come to the front of your minds as you read through the first part of this letter again and as we prepare for the next part still to come.
Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that even as God, who exists outside of time, who has created time itself, you have entered into time, that you might bring the reality of the future into our present, and that you might change who we are now, that you might give us such a departure from who we were in the past. We are no longer who we used to be. So please help us, Lord, to resolve things in the way that you would like. Help us, Lord, to resolve things in the way that you've shown us through your son, Jesus. You have created a great resolution for us in that where once we couldn't stand worthy before you, we're now invited to your table to fellowship with you, to sit with you, to eat with you, to speak with you. May we be these kinds of people as we seek to reconcile with one another those that we have disputes against, may we be a people that loves and forgives first, that doesn't seek to keep a record of wrongs, that is patient and forgiving. Make us into a kind people, make us into the image of your son, Jesus. And these things we pray in his name. Amen.